Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. One of the many revelations to come out of the January 6th committee hearings was Trump Attorney General Bill Barr describe in his own words how he pushed back against Trump's claims of election fraud. He called those claims bogus, crazy stuff, and most notoriously, complete BS. Despite the heroic headlines generated by Barr's testimony, it is a good point to remember that Barr did not say anything publicly debunking those same claims of election fraud until December 1st, which was nearly a month after the 2020 election. In fact, before his post-Trump rehabilitation tour, this was the Bill Barr we knew. What happened to the president in the 2016 election and throughout the first two years of his administration was abhorrent. It was a grave injustice, and it was unprecedented in American history. The law enforcement and intelligence apparatus of this country were involved in advancing a false and utterly baseless Russian collusion narrative against the president. The proper investigative and prosecutive standards of the Department of Justice were abused, in my view, in order to reach a particular result. The Durham investigation is trying to get to the bottom of what happened. I think spying on a political campaign is a big deal. I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. My own view is that uh, the evidence uh, shows that we're not dealing with just uh, mistakes or sloppiness. There was something far more troubling here, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. I think what happened to him was one of the greatest travesties in American history. That is the Bill Barr we knew for the years of the Trump administration. Trump's attorney general spent the vast majority of his time as the head of the Justice Department doing absolutely everything he could to cast doubts onto investigations into Trump. He argued that the DOJ and the FBI, institutions that he oversaw, were somehow part of a deep state plot to overthrow President Trump. To appease Trump in 2019, Barr appointed John Durham, a career Justice Department prosecutor, to investigate the origins of the intelligence community's investigation into Trump and his 2016 campaign dealings with Russia. Right before the 2020 election, Barr would promote Durham to special counsel, protecting his work from any future DOJ's grasp. And as Barr promised, special counsel John Durham did get to the bottom of it. But after nearly four years of investigating, it appears as though there was nothing at the bottom. John Durham lost the two key cases he brought to trial. They both ended in acquittals. The one guilty plea Durham did secure ended with no prison time. So despite what Donald Trump and Bill Barr would like you to believe, John Durham, it seems, found no evidence of what Bill Barr had called one of the greatest travesties in American history which really undermines the very notion that there was a travesty to begin with. And today, in a bombshell piece from an intrepid group of reporters at The New York Times, we are learning new details about Bill Barr and John Durham's efforts to craft a counter-narrative that Trump was, in fact, a victim of a deep state plot. Here's a headline. 
quote, Barr pressed Durham to find flaws in the Russia investigation. It didn't go well. The Times reports that Barr and Durham would often meet weekly in Barr's office together and drink scotch. As the Times reports, John Durham soon became a true believer, I wonder what scotch it was, in the mold of Bill Barr. Quote, as he was drawn into Barr's personal orbit, Durham came to embrace that particular attorney general's intense feelings about the Russia investigation. Probably the most explosive revelation in the Times piece is this. While on a foreign trip to Europe, Barr and Durham received a credible tip linking Donald Trump to suspected financial crimes. Rather than assign it to a different prosecutor, perhaps someone less inclined to drink scotch with him, Barr told Durham to investigate it himself. Quote, Mr. Durham never filed charges, and it remains unclear what level of an investigation it was, what steps he took, what he learned, and whether anyone at the White House ever found out. The extraordinary fact that Durham opened a criminal investigation that included scrutinizing Trump has remained secret. The investigator who was supposed to be investigating, excuse the reference, the investigators, special counsel John Durham, opened a criminal inquiry into then-President Donald Trump. But no one knows what came of it. Instead, the report dives into just how committed Bill Barr was to making sure the Durham probe uncovered something, as long as it seems, that that something didn't target President Trump. The Times reports that in one meeting, Barr, quote, repeating a sexual vulgarity, warned that if the NSA wronged him by not doing all it could to help Durham, Barr would do the same to the agency. Now, I can't say that sexual vulgarity on this family program, but you probably get the idea. Months out from the election and with no sign of imminent action from John Durham, Trump began putting public pressure on the men through TV interviews and Fox News. Here was the headline out of one Trump Fox News interview in August. Quote, Trump lays down the gauntlet for Barr on Durham probe, either greatest attorney general or average guy. Well, there you have it. We also learned from the Times that when Barr and Durham could not find anything regarding abuses by the intelligence community in opening that Trump-Russia investigation, then Attorney General Barr and Durham turned their sights to Old Faithful, a Hillary Clinton conspiracy. In other words, when their probe turned up nada, when Durham came up empty-handed, Barr and Durham chased down a new hypothesis. Hillary Clinton and her campaign had colluded with the government to push a Trump-Russia conspiracy. Because when all else fails, there is always the Republican Party's number one enemy, Hillary Clinton. Quote, by summer 2020, with Election Day approaching, Mr. Barr pressed Mr. Durham to draft a potential interim report centered on the Clinton campaign and FBI gullibility or willful blindness. While Durham never ended up releasing this report, the sheer desperation by the attorney general to give Trump a Hail Mary in the months before the election is astonishing. It became clear in the months leading up to the election that there was absolutely no evidence of a deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump. So what did Bill Barr do? Quote, by summer 2020, it was clear that the hunt for evidence supporting Barr's hunch about intelligence abuses had failed. But Barr waited until after the 2020 election to publicly concede that there had turned out to be no such sign of foreign government activity and that the CIA had stayed in its lane after all. I am so pleased to be joined by former FBI general counsel and senior member of Robert Mueller's special counsel team that investigated the Russian interference in the 2016 election, the great Andrew Weissman. Thanks for being here tonight. So great to be here. I had to, I mean, just pick my jaw up off the floor after reading this piece. What was your initial reaction to this? 
Well, first I reacted to it in terms of the journalism. Yeah. It, this is the A plus team at the New York Times. It is, if people have not read it, they really need to. It's beautifully sourced and beautifully written. Um, and you know, if it's this team, it's, they will have kicked all of the tires. So it was my first reaction. Um, I wasn't surprised to read about Barr. Um, I in part lived through yeah. his actions um, and and we were the victims of of his actions so that didn't surprise me it was to me it was more of the same on that i was surprised by the various revelations the the fact that there were not one but three prosecutors who resigned the reasons for their resignations which you surmised mm-hmm. but did not know and then as you pointed out the italy piece was beyond shocking um and that the sort of leaving it out there that this was really wrongdoing that was being investigated related to the FBI when it was actually Donald Trump and then to give it to Durham yeah. with no sort of public disclosure about this is just a sign of um you know what the house republicans called the weaponization of, of the, the department of government. justice yeah. i mean are they going to look at this? I mean, this entire article is exhibit A to how the Department of Justice was weaponized by Bill Barr and Donald Trump. And they saw no separation between the political sphere and the Department of Justice. And for whatever you can say about Merrick Garland, that is not his fault. Yeah. I mean, he is independent. So this is a really good example of exactly what can go wrong when the Department of Justice is weaponized, um, which is something that happens in the prior administration. There's no evidence that's happening now. I, to go back to what you're talking about, for, for those who don't recall, the, there was a moment when it became clear that there was a criminal investigation happening in the context of this Durham probe. As we find out today in the New York Times, the criminal investigation wasn't into the intelligence community or agents. It was into Donald Trump. And yet when the news broke about just the criminal aspect of all this, most people thought that meant that there had been wrongdoing at one of the agencies. And Bill Barr chose to not clear that up. Well, absolutely, because um, we all knew what the purview was for John Durham. So that if John Durham was looking at it, you knew it had to be within that scope. And he did nothing to correct that. And do, do you really sitting here think that John Durham and Bill Barr did a thorough assessment of that? It's not like they looked for it. This was the Italian government, according to the reporting, that gave them this tip. And it was apparently so convincing that they couldn't ignore it. But does anyone really think that this was investigated thoroughly? I mean, when I was at the Mueller investigation, we would have loved to have that information. (laughs) Like, I know some investigators who would have used that. Exactly. Are we ever going to find, I mean, first of all, this this invest- the Durham probe is not over yet. I mean, are we ever going to find out what that criminal investigation was? Is there someone else at the DOJ could, who could take it over? I mean, given the fact that these guys were so reluctant to do anything that was damaging to Trump, the fact that they felt it was necessary to investigate this suggests that it's something fairly significant in the way of criminal wrongdoing. Yeah. So it doesn't fit within any of this, that we, you know, the multiple special counsels that we currently have, um, you know, stay tuned. There you know, could be more, but right now it doesn't fit within the purview of what Jack Smith has or Rob Herr. 
Um, but you can imagine that with this reporting that Merrick Garland or Lisa Monaco are going to be really curious if they don't know already. And there's a good chance they don't because, you know, John Durham would have had to have told them about this and laid out all the facts. Now, maybe he did. Um, but if he didn't, they're going to look at this and decide whether it's something that needs to be pursued and whether, the, for instance, the scope of what um, Jack Smith is supposed to look at gets this gets folded into that. This is the danger of appointing a special counsel, right? Exactly. Uh, you, you, you seem sort of sanguine about Bill Barr and the politicization of the DOJ under his stewardship. I was still shocked by it. I mean, I, you know, he, it was out there to be seen, but the idea that he's back there drinking scotch with John Durham and that the atmosphere becomes poisonous and partisan enough that prosecutors are leaving the office. I mean, you've been on the inside of, of, of an investigation. What does it take to get people to resign in fury like that? Um, so, by the way, I think my view of Bill Barr, the reason I wasn't shocked is that I'm maybe starting at such a low point <laughs> yes. that it, you know, this, this is yes. confirmatory. So just to well, be clear. Well, you lived a different experience right, exactly. than I I'm not, did. I lived <laughs> through that month where there was a public letter reporting to be a summary of the Mueller report, which we internally knew was, was completely false Bogus. Um, and, and you know, just completely misleading to the American public um, and having to wait for the report to come out, knowing what Bill Barr was up to. And, when, and it, so that's sort of one piece. Um, to resign the way that it, at least two, possibly three people did is huge. I mean, that is that there has to be something that is that you find so uh, sort of unpalatable mm -hmm. um, in terms of ethics uh, that you are going to resign. And that is, in fact, what the reporting is with respect to the number two. Somebody who was very close to uh, John Durham, Nora Dennehy, uh, resigned and, according to the reporting, you know, issued a, you know, a formal written statement to the group about what was improper about what was going on and how they should not be issuing this sort of interim report to play politics um, at Bill Barr's and Donald Trump's uh, request. And then the second was before they brought charges against a sort of Clinton-affiliated lawyer, two of the prosecutors said the evidence is way too thin. Yeah. And also, this wouldn't have been brought against anyone else. The second part of what a prosecutor has to do, which is that even if there's the appropriate evidence, it's not the can we bring a case, it's should we bring it. And they had objections to both prongs. That is really significant. I mean, you shouldn't have that kind of dissension in the ranks. Um, in the ranks. I mean, I've, I have never experienced that, um, where something's happening that's that inappropriate. Um, when you talk about, when we talk about the various ways in which Barr was trying to undermine the good investigative work that was done at the department, there was an inspector general's report that was going to come out and basically, um, say that the, the agencies did nothing wrong here, that, that there was right. perfectly good reason to investigate the Trump-Russia ties. And Barr effectively gets out in front of it minutes before the inspector general's report comes out, basically saying all clear for the agencies, they did nothing wrong here. Barr preempts it with his own announcement, which was a very eerie echo to the thing that happened to you with the Mueller report, right? Before we get the report, report Barr is out there preemptively undermining the, the work that's been done and right. suggesting that, that, that something wrong, something wicked this way comes. Right, with, with no evidence. And it also, I mean, so that was quintessential Barr um, for all 
for everything that's bad about him. And I loved your opening because it reminds people that the, the new bar is not the new bar. He's still the old bar. He's still Bill Barr. Uh, exactly. Um, but that was the first sign that John Durham had lost his way. Because if you remember, he issues a statement also saying, well, I know more than the inspector general and I disagree with him. Um, and that is not done. That is, if you are doing an investigation, you either bring a charge or you don't. And it turns out that when all the, all sort of the facts came out, it was on the most minor mm -hmm. issue about an internal FBI rule. This is something I know very well from my prior job about when you can open a preliminary investigation mm -hmm. versus an assessment versus a full, which is not something that John Durham knows anything about. It's not in his wheelhouse. It's an FBI internal rule. And that was not what he fronted. It's not what he told the public. He made it sound like you really can't trust the inspector general because I know more. And that's when I think all of us at the department and people who had graduated from the department thought, you know what, there's a problem because John Durham has really changed his reputation for being sort of a career guy and a, a straight shooter. Something's happened. He has, you know, really lost his way, and that was that was really the first sign of it. Um, I would love to know what the scotch was. Was it Lafroig? Was it McAllen? It was something good because this is someone who really seemed to have a personality lobotomy in the course of his interactions with Bill Barr, who did inexcusable things to the integrity or to the impression of the integrity of our uh, intelligence agencies. Absolutely, Andrew. It's such a pleasure to have you on. I'm sorry that you had to go through what you. Had to go through and we're, I'm sure this is triggering in some fashion, it is. <laughs> uh, but it's so great to talk with you, especially about it um, in, in this amazing reporting from the New York Times. Thanks for your time nice as always. You. Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel. It's great to see you as always. We have a lot more to talk about tonight, including how all the concessions Kevin McCarthy made in order to get the House Speaker's gavel have started to backfire. And tomorrow, the Republican Party needs to pick their next chair, what that means for the current de facto leader of the grand old party. That's next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM.
It is not exactly a secret that during his four years in office, Donald Trump effectively took control of the Republican Party. But perhaps nowhere was that takeover more apparent than at the Republican National Committee, the institutional core of the national GOP. After Trump took office, Trump loyalists effectively took over the RNC. A staunch Trump ally, Ronna Romney McDaniel, became head of the party after Trump tapped former RNC chair Reince Priebus to be his chief of staff. Trump loyalists began to fill open seats on the committee, and key Trump allies became the party's new finance chairs in charge of the party's national fundraising. That led to some embarrassing headlines for the party when, one by one, those Trump-backed finance chairs became embroiled in their own scandals, ranging from allegations of rampant sexual misconduct to foreign corruption schemes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Steve Wynn or Elliot Broidy. But throughout those scandals, the RNC remained effectively an extension of Trump world, promoting Trump's businesses and featuring him in fundraising emails. In 2020, the RNC spent $300,000 of their donors' money buying copies of Donald Trump Jr.'s book. Trump even involved the RNC in his fake elector scheme to try and overturn the 2020 election. But now, that cozy relationship between Trump and the National Republican Party may be coming to an end. According to the New York Times, members of the RNC, some of whom were noted Trump backers, those members are now expressing doubts about backing Trump again in 2024. The New York Times called, emailed or texted all 168 RNC members. Just four of them offered an unabashed unabashed endorsement of Mr. Trump's 2024 campaign. Twenty said the former president should not be the party's nominee. An additional 35 said they would like to see a big primary field or declined to state their position on Mr. Trump. And the remaining did not respond to messages. New phone, who this? The move away from Trump comes as the party is being roiled by an internal battle between its Trump-supporting chair, Ronna McDaniel, and a conservative challenger named Harmeet Dillon. Tomorrow, the RNC will hold an election for its chairmanship, and though McDaniel is expected to win that election and remain in her current role, she's facing a surprisingly strong challenge from Harmeet Dillon, who has managed to earn the backing of leading movement conservatives like Matt Gates and Tucker Carlson. And just today, Dylan picked up her most important endorsement yet. I think we need uh, a change. I think we need to get some new blood in the RNC. Uh, I like what Harmeet Dillon has said about getting the RNC out of D.C. I think it's going to be very difficult to energize people to want to give money, to want to volunteer their time with the RNC if they don't see a change in direction. Joining us now is Mike Murphy, Republican strategist and co-host of the podcast Hacks on Tap. Mike, there's really no one better to talk to about this intra-party conflagration than you. What do you think of—is the RNC battle a proxy battle for the soul of the Republican Party? And if so, do you see any alarm bells, truly ringing alarm bells, for the former president, Donald Trump? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the New York Times story today reflected what a lot of us in the party world hear, which is tremendous frustration at losing. Even people that Trump put on the committee, um, you know, we're, we're, we're worse. We're doing worse than the Washington generals, the team that's paid to lose to the Globetrotters. So there's <laughs> frustration. So what you're seeing in the RNC race is kind of the the. Trump guard on the defense about an election that Trump and his acolytes helped blow. 
So, you know, Ronna McDa- Romney changed name to McDaniel because Mitt became unpopular. The Romney name worked fine for, for a while. Is really on the defensive. Now, Harmie Dillon is coming in saying these clowns can't win an election, but there's not a lot of evidence she knows how to either. Her coalition is interesting. It's both the hardest core of the RNC and some of the pragmatic party regulators who just want to get uh, Ronna uh, Romney McDaniel out of there because they think it's Keystone Cop City. So uh, Rana is favored. And the RNC is a very inside election, only 178 votes, three from each state and another 18 ex officio. They don't really like outsiders. But as you saw in the New York Times, they want to change. So, you know, it's not impossible uh, that Harmeet upsets this thing, but it would be a shocker. Now, DeSantis has made it a proxy battle in a smaller way between him and Trump. I, I can't quite figure out the smart move for him here, uh, because now if Rana, who starts with more support, is able to hang on, that's a win for Trump at a time when, as New York Times showed us, the RNC, a, a bunch of those members that used to be hardcore Trump all the way are now looking for something new. I, what I don't get, I mean, I, I, I don't, there's, there's a lot of reporting on this about the way in which Ron, Romney McDaniel, yeah. Romney, Romney, I gotta stop saying Romney. I know she wants me to. Ronna McDaniel is being blamed for the party's losses. The Hill says some Republicans have called for McDaniel to step down as the party was unable to win the House in 2018, lost the Senate and presidency in 2020, and when, was unable to flip the Senate last November. And I had to laugh because it's like, do you know why the the party lost. It is not because of Ron, Ron of Romney McDaniel. It's because the party has been led off a cliff by Donald Trump. And yet no one seems to understand that. The fact that uh, Harmeet Dillon can knit together an unlikely band of moderates and hardcore conservatives is evidence that nobody's actually thinking about the substantive issues of Republicanism at this stage in the game. They're, they're talking about new pizza, new pizza, and they're just changing the box. They need to change the actual pizza. I don't know why I'm using that metaphor, but I think it's appropriate at this moment. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, they're just... No, no, you're right. Of, you're go ahead, right. Mike. It, they're, no, no, they're fighting over the, 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 the can. Well, the dogs won't get near the dog food. So Rana takes a lot of heat for the failed thing, but she's a rubber stamp for Trump. Hell, buying $300,000 of Donald Trump Jr.'s book, you know, I'd rather do a weekend at Guantanamo than have to read that thing, and let alone blowing party money where we were getting outspent in some places on that. So, you know, it's the, 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 she's catching the blame for being a Trump right hand. And because Harmeet can just say, I'm new and better, eh, she's kind of dodging the question. It's a good message, but she doesn't have the answer either. She's in the Carrie Lake business. So, you know, it's the presidential primaries that'll find the soul of the Republican Party. Uh, this is a sideshow, but it's not an unimportant one because the organization institutionally is powerful and, and important. Well, you, you bring up the primaries and it says, you know, we have reporting that New Hampshire and South Carolina, people are still very much on the fence when it comes to Donald Trump. Do you think DeSantis, does DeSantis have a play to make here substantively, really honestly? I mean, you know, Trump may be off-putting to a lot of people, but he is an incredibly dynamic candidate that has a lot of staying power. How in danger do you actually think he is in terms of his titular role at the top of the party? Well, look, you can never underestimate Trump, but if you ask Republicans 
are you favorable to Trump? 85% of them, which maybe 80 now, slipped a little, say, oh, great president, wonderful, still have my red hat. You ask those same people, do you want Trump to be the president next time? It drops down to 40, 45. Half of them run away as fast as they can. So there's an opening for DeSantis, uh, who on paper has a lot going on and plays the culture war piano well. That said, it is early. And running for president is like going through 500 car washes. And DeSantis has been through two car washes. So I don't know if he has the long-term legs, but he's the strongest position guy now in the early moves. And he's the one that, you know, activists are starting to take the first hard look at. So he's the anti-Trump right now, but we have a long time to go. No shortage of Republicans who privately want to take out Trump and run for president. Uh, 500 car washes. We're only two down. It's a lot of car washes, Mike Murphy. Always good to see you, my friend. Republican strategist and co-host of the podcast, Hacks on Tap. Thanks for your time tonight, Mike. We have much more to come tonight, including why this dummy hand grenade may be the perfect metaphor for Kevin McCarthy's Republican-led Congress. Stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. What I'm about to show you next is difficult to watch, and the pattern here is even more difficult to live with. On April 4th, 2015, in North Charleston, South Carolina, he was driving with a broken taillight. When an officer stopped him for that traffic infraction, he ran into a grassy lot. The officer began chasing him on foot before firing a taser. When he continued to flee, the officer fired eight shots at his back. When his limp body fell to the ground, the officer yelled, put your hands behind your back. He died from those gunshots. His name was Walter Scott, and he was 50 years old. On July 10th, 2015, in Waller County, Texas, she was on her way to the grocery store when police pulled her over for failing to signal a lane change. When she refused an officer's request to put out her cigarette, the officer reached into her car and threatened to yank her out. When she began recording the altercation, the officer pulled out his taser and said this. Get out of the car! And then you I will light me? you up! Get out! Wow! Now! Wow! Get out of the car! For a failure to signal! You're doing all of this for Get over there! He then threw her to the ground. With her voice cracking, she told him she had epilepsy and her head had hit the ground. He responded, good. They arrested her and took her to the Waller County Jail. 
Days later, when she was found dead in her cell, her death was ruled a suicide. Her family disputed that. Her name was Sandra Bland. She was 28 years old. On April 11th, 2021, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, he was pulled over for expired registration tags. The officers conducting the traffic stop tried to detain him when they realized he had an outstanding warrant. When he tried to step back into his car, officers began to tussle with him. One officer warned that she would use her taser and then fired a bullet into his chest. His car took off, crashed, and he was pronounced dead at the scene. His name was Dante Wright. He was 20 years old. This kind of fatal traffic stop has happened all across the country over and over again. According to the nonprofit research group Mapping Police Violence, police kill about 1,100 people each year. 10% of those deaths involve traffic stops, and they disproportionately involve black drivers. The lives of black drivers are so frequently threatened during these stops that when parents of black children teach their kids how to drive, they also try to teach them how to survive. They give them the talk, what to do if you're pulled over, what to do if police get aggressive, how to talk to the police so that you come home alive at the end of the day. Parents must educate their children on how to survive the threat of state-sanctioned violence. Despite that preparation, this fatal use of force against black people keeps happening. And it happened again on January 7th in Memphis, Tennessee. He was pulled over on suspicion of reckless driving. Five officers approached his car where officials say a confrontation occurred and pepper spray was used. When he ran away, police followed him. Police say there was another confrontation when they tried to arrest him. At that point, he was injured and complained of shortness of breath. An ambulance took him to the hospital. His family took this photo of him with blood on his face, apparently unconscious with a swollen eye. He died on January 10th, just yards away from his mother's home. An autopsy found that he suffered extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating. His name was Tyree Nichols. He was 29 years old. And in this case, there is no video yet. Today, Six days after the five officers who stopped Nichols that night were fired, those same officers were arrested and charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, and four other charges. An attorney for two of the officers says they will plead not guilty. All five former officers are black, and all five are agents of the state who targeted and killed a black motorist. The Shelby County District Attorney added this during a press conference announcing the charges. While each of the five individuals played a different role in the incident in question, the actions of all of them resulted in the death of Tyree Nichols, and they are all responsible. Nothing we do today or did today precludes the addition of any further charges. The DA announced that footage from the traffic stop will be released tomorrow night at 6 p.m. When Tyree Nichols' mother watched the footage on Monday, she was not able to finish it. The director of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and the Memphis County Police Chief described what appears in the video this way. I'm sickened by what I saw. And what we've learned through our extensive and thorough investigation. I've seen the video, and as D.A. Mulroy stated, you will too. In a word, it's absolutely appalling. This incident was heinous, reckless, 
and inhumane. And in the vein of transparency, when the video is released in the coming days, you will see this for yourselves. I expect you to feel what the Nichols family feels. I expect you to feel outrage in the disregard of basic human rights. Officials are bracing for protests as the country awaits the release of this video, even fully activating local police departments in some places. The Nichols family and elected officials and local leaders and even President Biden are urging the country to protest peacefully after the footage is released. For families in Memphis and across the country, this story, this pattern, this violence is personal. Millions of people live in fear that the next time they or their child or their partner is driving to the grocery store or driving with a broken taillight or in a hurry, we might wind up saying their names, too. Today, the newly elected Republican congressman from Florida, Corey Mills, brought his fellow House members grenades. Along with the literal grenade was a letter explaining the grenade significance in case, for some reason, you didn't immediately interpret being handed a grenade in the right way. The letter read, welcoming you to a mission-oriented 118th Congress. I'm eager to get to work for the American people, and I look forward to working with you to deliver on this commitment. I'm honored to be a part of the Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Committees. In that spirit, it is my pleasure to give you a 40-millimeter grenade made for an MK-19 grenade launcher. These are manufactured in the Sunshine State and first developed in the Vietnam War. Let's come together and get to work on behalf of our constituents. And then at the very bottom of the letter, there was a little note about how the grenades were inert. Maybe put that part first next time. Now, of course, this was a publicity stunt, but it is also sort of a perfect metaphor for House Republicans right now because... Well, House Republicans keep getting really close to blowing each other up and their entire party, figuratively speaking, of course. Tonight marks a week since the U.S. government hit its debt limit. The Treasury Department says it can use creative accounting to keep the government running until somewhere around early June. But after that, the government could default on its debt and potentially throw the entire global economy into chaos. Of course, the only thing stopping the U.S. from raising the debt limit and avoiding avoiding all of that are House Republicans and their fake grenades. Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his caucus have been incredibly upfront that they are using this looming potential catastrophe to their advantage, holding the nation's debt hostage to get what they want. Now, Republicans have done that before, but this time there's one key difference. Republicans don't know what they want. They just know they'll fight like hell to get it. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, has said there have to be cuts in spending for her to agree to a raise in the debt limit. But when asked what should be cut, she replied, quote, I haven't really formulated an exact list. Joining us now is Brendan Buck, former senior advisor to Republican speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Brendan, thank you for being here. I'm sorry that every time I speak with you, it seems to be like a crisis moment for the Republican Party. But I know there is a lot of comparison between this debt limit raise and the previous crisis around the debt limit that you were a part of back in the House. Uh, not that you were creating it, but you were a part of the negotiations. Um, and this time feels different, not just because we're in a different landscape and they're different actors. But as Dan Pfeiffer says, you know, in a Politico article today, John Boehner may have been willing to put more of his butt, and I'm paraphrasing, but on the line, he did intellectually and substantively understand why default was terrible. I'm not sure that McCarthy understands that, that McCarthy cares, and that McCarthy would value the full faith and credit of the U.S. over his own job. Do you agree with that? Are that is that where we're at right now? 
Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it entirely. I think Kevin McCarthy clearly understands the consequences that we're dealing with. I think the difference here was in 2011, I think you were covering this, I think you appreciated, we all had confidence that Barack Obama and John Boehner were not going to let something really bad happen. I don't think Kevin McCarthy wants something really bad to happen, and I think he knows it would be really bad if we went over the, the limit here. But what he's dealing with is a conference that is just so much further to the right than what we dealt with. Look, we were very conservative in 2011, don't get me wrong, but it's a cast of characters right now who think that their job is to blow things up. They think that they're there to have chaos. My biggest problem, you know, you outlined this really well, nobody has really formulated their view of what needs to be done here. In 2011, we set a, a standard, a framework. We worked, we, we, we communicated for a really long time about what we were trying to accomplish. This just feels like they rolled out of bed one day and decided that we're going to hold hostage the debt limit and have not communicated to anybody within themselves, the public, what it is they're trying to do or, or get out of this. And so they're making it up as they go along. This is really serious stuff, of course. And so I think they need to be a little more deliberate about what they're trying to do, be a little more reasonable in what they're trying to accomplish. Um, because right now, it seems like all of their leverage comes from the idea like, we might be crazy enough to do this. We might be crazy enough to go over the debt limit um, and, and think that's the kind of leverage that they need. And it's it's a scary place to be. I don't know how they resolve it. Well, but, you know, and I appreciate your sort of defense of McCarthy's um, appreciation that going past the debt, going over the cliff is not something that he wants. But the question is, he, is he going to do anything to prevent us from doing that? Will he risk his job? There are Democrats that would, uh, you know, vote for a clean debt raise, right? There's a way to do this that doesn't create global financial calamity, but would endanger Kevin McCarthy's standing with the far right wing of his caucus. As of right now, what we saw in the speaker's fight, it feels like he'll do anything to keep a hold of that gavel. It's impossible to imagine John Boehner taking 15 votes and making every concession under the sun just to hold on to the speaker's gavel. And yet that is something Kevin McCarthy did. It's a totally fair question. I think there is a real possibility that he has to face the, the, the choice, the question of bring up a bill that probably upsets a lot of your conference and face their wrath or go over the limit. I think he will ultimately choose to bring that bill up, but it will be hard to execute and there will be incredible political pressure. I, I, I don't know how we're going to get there. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I do think there is going to be that moment in June or July where he has to make that decision. Uh, and it may cost him uh, a motion to vacate. They may, he may survive that. They may kick him out, but I do think that there's a very real possibility. Those are the stakes that we're dealing with. I just think that Kevin McCarthy is probably, um, I don't think he is willing to risk economic catastrophe for his job. I really don't think that. That's a big think. I have one last one for you, Brendan. Mitch McConnell was seen in a bipartisan event with Joe Biden as Kevin McCarthy was having this speaker's vote debacle. And now Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao, is out with a statement basically criticizing former President Trump about his racist insults. When I was young, some people deliberately misspelled or mispronounced my name. Asian Americans have worked hard to change that experience for the next generation, said Chow. Uh, Trump doesn't seem to understand that, which says a whole lot more about Trump than it will ever say about Asian Americans. This is the wife of the minority leader. This is someone who Trump has a rocky relationship with publicly. Do you think it is indicative of the way McConnell himself may manage future, uh, you know, negotiations with the White House that his wife is coming out and leveling pretty strong criticism against a man that Kevin McCarthy is very much still pledging allegiance to? 
Yeah, I think this is going to be a really fascinating dynamic. I'm really glad that she she said that. Mitch McConnell has uh, become a master of expressing his disdain for Donald Trump without ever actually saying his name or, or referencing him directly. Um, but that's going to come to a head. Like, there's very very soon we're going to be deciding who the nominee uh, uh, for the Republican Party is in 2024, and Mitch McConnell is going to have to come some type of co- confrontation with that. And it's going to make governing really hard. Like, imagine trying to raise the debt limit with a deal that Mitch McConnell has struck, and and Donald Trump is going to war with him. So I think we're going to have some some pretty open warfare here. Um, very notable that she said that. I don't think that was an accident. Um, and I expect a lot more of that, that confrontation over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Aren't you glad you aren't there anymore? Brendan Buck, former senior advisor to Republican speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Thanks as always for your time, Brendan. Yeah, thanks, Alex. We'll be right back. That's the show for tonight. A quick note of shameless self-promotion. You can catch me later tonight in the time-space continuum talking to NBC's Seth Meyers. I will be his guest on Late Night with Seth Meyers at 12.35 a.m. Eastern on NBC. I will see you again here on this set tomorrow night. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.